So this morning, we're going to talk about one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Many people know it best as the story of the talking donkey. (laughs) But this donkey's owner was not Shrek. He was actually an internationally famous prophet named Balaam. Balaam, who really, as we're going to see, was the real talking donkey. But of course, skeptics have ridiculed the Bible for so long for stories such as this because they automatically dismiss everything that is supernatural. But a talking donkey or a talking snake like in Genesis is no more difficult to God than making a, a mute man speak, you know, as Jesus caused to happen in the Gospels. The Bible is filled from cover to cover with supernatural accounts that are intended to be taken literally. That's often how God gets people's attention, right? Many people mistakenly think that God spoke through this donkey, but in reality, God just gave the donkey the ability to articulate its own thoughts and mind. It's just a subtle difference there, but it's important. All the things that God wanted to communicate through Balaam, he spoke to Balaam directly. The talking donkey was really just a foreshadow of how God can use anyone, including a pagan prophet, as his instrument. Balaam is a fairly prominent character in the Bible. He's actually mentioned more times than Noah. 60 times, I think, verses 52. And as we're going to see, this story contains some fairly relevant things for us today. Because like ancient Israel, we have enemies seeking to destroy us. And in this story, we're going to read some of the most striking and thrilling words of grace that you will ever read anywhere in the Bible. And it also contains one of the Old Testament's clearest predictions regarding the Messiah. So, let's pray. Let's ask God to prepare our hearts to receive from him this this picture of who God is, how he views us, and how he fights for us in this fallen world. Well, Father, we're thankful for this very familiar story We ask that you would teach us through it. We pray that you would open our eyes to spiritual realities around us that we don't see with our natural eyes. We pray that you'd wake us up to the tactics of our enemy, the seriousness of sin, and the staggering wonders of your grace. May it result in greater sobriety, greater holiness, and greater love for you. We ask you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's cue this up with just a little background information going into this. The people of Israel have been wandering, as you know, through the wilderness for 40 long years. Aaron has died. Moses is about to die um, after he transfers leadership to Joshua. In fact, every person who left Egypt 20 years and up is dead or has died except for just two men, Joshua and Caleb because of their faith and obedience. And I think it's important for us to pause and consider that according to the Bible, this 
miserable 40-year journey was only supposed to take 11 days. Just 11 days. And the only thing, the only thing that made it that long and that necessary was their rebellious, untrusting, and ungrateful hearts. Psalm 68, 6 says that only, only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And one lesson here for us is that our faith-inspired obedience, it really matters. It really matters. We're in a real war with real enemies in which there are real casualties. We all know Christians who have wandered or strayed or plateaued or, or just given up. They may still go to heaven, but their earthly life is like a parched and dry wilderness. If you've never read John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress, I really encourage you to read it through at least once. Get a copy. It'll help you appreciate all the deadly snares and pitfalls that are out there. Okay, Numbers 26.51 says that there were over 600,000 men ready to enter the promised land. So the total population by this time was at least two and a half million people. Two and a half million. They traveled toward the Jordan River from the east along some of the Jordan's tributaries. And when they came to the land of the Amorites, they actually asked permission to peacefully pass through on their way, on their way east. But the Amorites didn't believe them. They came out to fight them. And so God helped them utterly defeat them. I think they, they were able to capture 60 fortified cities, 60 of them. And in Numbers 22, where our story really begins, Balak, who's the king of Moab, he is terrified because he believes Moab is next in line to be destroyed. He knows that he's no match for Israel, so he sends messengers to Balaam to pay him to pronounce a curse upon Israel in order to thwart their military progress and success. But the God of Israel, he tells Balaam to not go with them and to not curse them. So Balak sends even more people, a more distinguished envoy to offer Balaam even more money, silver and gold. And Balaam inquires of the Lord a second time. But this time, God tells Balaam to go with him. And so he does. Unfortunately, Balak... He didn't know that God had already prohibited Israel from ever attacking Moab. You see, God had given the land of the Moabites to them as a gift, clear back in Abraham's time. Now, it's important for us to understand that Balaam was not a believer in the God of Israel. There can be a misperception about that. He served demonic, false gods like Baal and Chemosh through, through, divine, through divination that was pagan. Well, what did that look like? Well, he, he would uh, take sacrificial animals and actually examine their entrails and their livers in order to discern things and, and other natural phenomena. And Balaam is universally condemned 
in Scripture for his moral, ethical, and religious faults, one of which was greed, which we see in Jude 1.11 in the New Testament, which says, Woe to the false prophets, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. There's a progression here. First, they walked on a path seeking wealth or gain. Second, they abandoned themselves to that desire. And third, they perished in that error. And sadly, there are many preachers and churches today that are on that same path. Another passage in the New Testament that references this, 2 Peter 2, 14 to 16, says these false prophets have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Wow, which brings us to the talking donkey, right? I'm not going to dwell on this because I really want to get to Balaam's oracles. <clears throat> but basically, Balaam's on his way to meet with the, princes of, with the princes of Moab to meet King Balak. And the donkey he's riding just starts to go off the path into a field. Well, this was extremely embarrassing for this internationally revered prophet. And so Balaam beats his donkey three times. This happens because the donkey sees something that the great seer cannot. He sees the angel of the Lord standing in his path with a drawn sword. And the Lord enables this abused donkey to reprove Balaam. After which the Lord opens Balaam's eyes. Now the angel of the Lord, which is often seen in the Old Testament, is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. And Balaam replies by saying, I have sinned. But as we're going to see, he's probably not really sincere. God allows Balaam to proceed, but he warns him to only speak the words that God gives him, nothing more. Well, King Balak is so eager and desperate for Balaam to start cursing Israel that he travels to meet Balaam at the very far edge of his own border. And he takes Balaam up to the high place of his false god, Baal. Numbers 22, 41 says, And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. Here's an actual picture of Bamoth Baal. <clears throat> Balaam then instructs, or Balak instructs uh, Balaam, Balaam instructs Balak to build seven altars and to sacrifice a bull and a ram on each of them. Now, these were probably not intended as actual sacrifices to the God of Israel. Again, Balaam was an expert in examining animal livers for divination purposes. So this was probably just standard procedure for pagan sorcery. But even so, God met with Balaam. And he even puts a message in Balaam's mouth. Here's the first of seven oracles or messages that God spoke through Balaam to King Balak. Numbers 23, 7 to 10. From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. 
How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. This was an irrevocable blessing. And Balak is understandably angry. He's paying good money to this prophet in hopes that his own people not be destroyed. And as the story proceeds, it becomes almost comical. Balak doesn't give up. From Bamoth Baal, he takes Balaam up to another mountain peak called Pisgah, from which they can see a different portion of the 2.5 million Israelites. And here's Pisgah, which is also known as Mount Nebo, which is where Moses was soon to die. And here's the whole area, okay? So they're coming from the left, from the right to the left towards Shittim. The Israelites are camped in that valley of Shittim, and each of the three mountain peaks offered a different vantage point from which to curse them. Just like the first time, only a fraction of the people were visible, which was intentional. By obscuring the numbers, Balak thought that the gods would be less likely to bless them, that the gods would be less impressed by Israel. So it's just kind of a, a superstitious kind of thing. So here Balaam requests seven more altars for seven more bulls and seven more rams, and he inquires of the Lord again and comes back with another message from God. Numbers 23, 18 to 24. Let's read this. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and, get, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. He goes on, the Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God, literally Yahweh, brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Whew. This was not what Balak wanted to hear. The God of Israel is not like the gods that, that Balak is familiar with. He does not change his mind. Balaam is probably actually even, you know, looking down at the, uh, the glory cloud coming up from the tabernacle itself when he remembers and he mentions that there's a king among them. Well, Israel didn't have a king at this time. That's why Balaam identifies him as Yahweh. That's why in your Bible it's, it's, it's Lord with all capital letters. Now, verse 21 is interesting. It's hard to translate because in Hebrew, the he is indefinite. 
We don't know if it's referring to God or if it's just speaking of anyone in general. If it's God, it means that God, in his mercy, shut his eyes to the evil existing among the Israelites and for his own sake would not hold it against them. Okay? And if, it's, if the he is impersonal, then the phrase would mean that he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob and it was that, that their sin was not flagrant enough to warrant their utter destruction. Now the words misfortune and trouble here, they're also translated as iniquity and perverseness, wickedness and trouble, evil and malice, misfortune and misery. And if that doesn't strike you as odd, something is wrong. Okay, because for the last 22 weeks, we have hardly talked about anything but Israel's iniquity and perverseness. Even God himself mentions Israel's rebellions numerous times back in uh, chapter 14 where he says this, Numbers 14, 21 to 23, but truly as I live... And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. So we can easily list these ten rebellions. One was at the Red Sea when it seemed that Pharaoh's army would destroy them. Two at at Marah where they found bitter water. Three in the desert of sin as they hungered. Four in the desert of sin as they disobeyed Moses on the storing of the manna until the morning. Five in the desert of sin as they disregarded Moses regarding the gathering of the manna on the seventh day. Six at Rephidim as they complained for water. Seven, at Mount Sinai, as Aaron led the people in making the golden calf. Eight, at Tabor, where the people raged against the Lord. Nine, at Kibroth Hetavah, in the grumbling provoked by the rabble for quail to eat. Ten, at Kadesh, in the desert of Paran, where the people refused to receive the good report of Joshua and Caleb, but rather wished themselves dead. And it wasn't just rebellion during those 40 years. There was gross idolatry as well. Acts seven forty-two to 43 says, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you made to worship. This just strikes me. Can you even imagine that while the one true God was miraculously delivering them from their bitter slavery in Egypt, they had the audacity to bring along with them all their pagan idols. But you know what? When God miraculously saves us from eternity in hell, we often bring our idols with us as well, don't we? Into our new lives of freedom. So how can a holy God who sees all and knows all honestly, 
honestly declare to Balak that he has not seen iniquity, perverseness, wickedness, or evil in Israel. Well, number one, God certainly was aware of all their evil, and he deals with their evil through many severe disciplines. But, but, to this pagan king, God defends his covenant people. He defends them as holy, set apart, unaccusable, unimpeachable, uncursable, invincible, and blessed. Amen? He defends them. And I want to impress on us all this morning that that is how God defends us, despite all our sin. There are several verses in the Bible on this that just boggle the mind. Let me share a few. Micah 7.19 says, He, God, will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, 12, familiar verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know, if the psalmist had said from north to south, then our sin would only be as far away as the north and south pole, right? But from east to west is an infinite distance. Isaiah 38, 17 says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love You have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. That phrase, behind your back, it literally means between the shoulder blades. That's the one place that no matter how hard you try, you cannot see. I know you're all trying right now, right? Can't do it. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Does that mean that as Christians we're unable to sin? Well, no. But it does mean that that no sin we ever commit need ever stick to us or condemn us. And it was because these sinful Israelites were in a covenant relationship with God that no prophet, seer, or soothsayer was able to curse them. It's like Proverbs 26.2. It says, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. So it's not the, the moral state of Israel that's in view here. Obviously, 22 weeks of talking about their sin, right? It's not the moral state, but rather it's Israel's standing. It's their standing before God. Just as our current state might be sinful, but we stand in God's righteousness and favor. Well, Balak is so desperate that he takes Balaam to a third mountain from which to curse Israel, Beth Peor. Here's what it looks like on site. Here's another, here's a modern day picture of what the view would have been like looking down into the valley of Shittim where the Israelites were camped from Balaam's vantage point. And once again, Balaam has Balak build seven more altars for seven more bulls, seven more rams, but this time, Balaam does not use divination for omens as before. He turns his eyes toward this camp of the Israelites and the Spirit of God comes upon him. 
he prophesies as before. And he blesses. He start, in Numbers 23, 3 to 9, he starts blessing Israel over and over and over and over. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but Balak is furious, absolutely furious. And he commands Balaam to go home with no pay. And, but before Balaam goes, he prophesies regarding Moab and several of its surrounding areas and cities. And he includes this enigmatic prediction of the Messiah 14 centuries before Jesus was born. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Is this future star and scepter coming out of the line of Jacob? The scepter was a symbol at that time of a king. And in ancient times, the star symbol represented deity, or yeah, deity, not just in Israel, but, but in a lot of the cultures. It represented deity. In ancient Israel, they carved stars on everything, on, on their pottery and on their coins and in their synagogues. This is one from the 7th century B.C., this is also why the star also became an ancient Christian symbol, adorning the floors of ancient churches, and why Jesus declared himself to be the bright morning star in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. You see, to the Jews, the star represented and long represented their promised Messiah. This star prophecy was literally fulfilled when Magi came from the east to see the new Jewish king following what? A star. Following the star. And this is so cool. I didn't know this. But the Roman, the well-established Roman road that those magi would have taken to come to Jerusalem or to come to Bethlehem to see the newborn Christ, it went right by this spot of Beth Peor, right by it, where the prophecy was made. Wow. And so the most important thing that Balaam is saying about the Israelites is that not now, but in the future, from them will come the God King. The God King. The Israelites believed in only one star, only one God, so this verse can only mean that Yahweh himself was going to come out of Jacob and be an Israelite. I find that pretty remarkable. Well, unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. In Numbers 25, the men of Israel begin engaging in sexually centered worship of the Canaanite fertility god, Baal. And the local Moabite women had the Israelites sacrificing to and bowing down to their pagan gods. You see, what King Balak was unable to do with all his money and power, these women easily, easily accomplished. It's really sad. They brought Israel down sexually, immorally, in false worship and great judgment 
So God sends a plague on them. And he kills 24,000 Israelite men. Where did this horrific idea originate? Who told Balak to employ this strategy? Numbers 31.16, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam was forbidden by God to curse Israel. But every man has his price. And for for the right price, Balaam taught Balak how he could utterly destroy Israel. He tells Balak, you know, I I can't curse them for you, but I'll tell tell you what you can do. Just get them to be unequally yoked with pagan women. Just get them to marry pagan women. And this sin, it was different from all of Israel's previous sins and rebellions. This sexually centered worship of Baal was a breach of covenant with the Lord. It's implied that one Israelite man even took his prostitute into the tabernacle tent itself. That's when Phineas arose and pierced them both through with a spear. And it's why Moses commands vengeance upon all the Midianite men, burned all their cities and took all their spoil to prevent the further corruption of Israel. And as as an epilogue, they also killed Balaam with the sword as well. You know, Balaam seems like such a decent guy. I mean, he, he... talks to the Lord, he seeks the Lord, but he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He wants to walk along the path, holding hands, you know, with God and holding hands with Balak. In other words, he wants the best of both worlds. Sound familiar? I think it sounds familiar to all of us. The church today cannot walk with God and also hold hands with the world at the same time. Because the world is a path of greed, power, lust, and covetousness. It just is. You know, early in church history, the devil, who hates the church, he thought, I'll destroy Christians. I'm going to burn them at the stake. I'm going to feed them to hungry lions. I'm going to put them on the rack. And I'm going to have... Their horses rip their arms and legs from their sockets. But the devil found that the more he persecuted them that way, the more they grew. He eventually learned that he could not beat them through confrontation. So he changed his tactics to infiltration. And he started giving the church everything that it wanted. Prosperity, security, a good reputation. And as a result, today, many evangelical churches look like the world, feel like the world, sound like the world because they are the world. We're to be different from the world. Let me just read a passage to you that came to mind. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. God says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Band, you guys can come on back up. Here's one final lesson from this story. I want to, there's a lot more we could talk about. Satan wants you cursed. Do you believe that? He wants you cursed, just like he is presently cursed. Why? I don't know. Misery loves company. I think it's also because he fears you. He wants to render you ineffective for God's kingdom. He knows that if a Christian can see just one person saved in their life, that that over hundreds of years, that could easily multiply to thousands. Thousands. We don't think in those terms. We just... We're so tunnel vision. We, we don't think about even the next generation, let alone 10 generations from now. You are an incredible threat to him. The enemy knows that, but do you? And so if the enemy can't make you ineffective, you know, through some kind of sin, he'll just occupy and consume your life with so many good things that he'll achieve the same end. But just as Balaam was unable, he was literally unable to curse Israel, so Satan is unable to curse us. I love this verse in Revelation 12, 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This happened when Jesus died on the cross. So it applies to you and to me. One last verse. Let me just share one more thing. Because of the cross, it's because of the cross that God can take every single curse made against us for our harm and not just refrain from cursing us, but turn it into a blessing. He did that for his covenant people, Israel, and he does it for us. Here's the verse, Deuteronomy 23, 5, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. God loved the Israelites, even though they were stubborn, stiff-necked, faithless, idolatrous, disobedient, grumbling, and complaining people. God didn't just tolerate them. He blessed them. He was their ultimate defender, and he is ours today as well. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Do you realize you're more blessed even than the Israelites? 
Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing that can possibly be had in the universe for all time, you got it. You have it. It's yours now and forever. Every single one.